Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So here we are, the end in sight. And uh, you might notice what your reaction is to that fact. Maybe it's, yeah, let's go, you know. Horse at the gate, you know, come on, uh, and they're off. Um, Or it might be, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Wherever you are is absolutely fine just to notice what your internal experience is and hold it with kindness and compassion as we've been saying all along. But I wanted to talk tonight uh, about what now, or what then, when you go. Since you, uh, because now we're right here, right now. (laughs) You're here now, aren't you? But then, that now is going to be a little different than this now. You get what I mean. And so the question uh, might might be, um, how can I bring this home? Or can I bring this home? Or do I really have to go home? So I want to talk tonight about, about that. You've probably most, if not all, everybody that I've seen, uh, and I have a feeling the same is true for, um, for the rest of us, has touched something here that's, uh, that's had some impact on you. Uh, and don't have to worry about comparing notes of who had the mo- most mind-blowing experience. It's not even about mind-blowing experiences. It might be, um, gee, it helps to be a bit kinder to myself. Or, you know, I really don't control everything the way I thought I'd, I should. Or, wow, look at this mind. And maybe others are in the same predicament. Or maybe there's a number of different understandings about how things change or how letting go is a, uh, is a secret to true well-being or any number of things. But in seeing everybody, uh, it, it always gives me, um, never ceases to amaze me, I should say, that this stuff really works. It does. The first day, there's like, gee, I wonder if it'll work this time. (laughs) No, I always have a confidence that it will, but the first day or two, it's challenging, and uh, and, uh, we're kind of just encouraging people to hang in there because it's worth it. And whatever you've touched is yours. We'll talk tomorrow about more uh, fine... Uh, uh, details and tips about things to keep it going. But 
I want to see sh talk about in the bigger picture uh, how you do bring your practice home into your life. And just know that whatever you've touched here, you've planted lots of seeds. If you've done nothing else, then occasionally have noticed your breath coming in and out. Those moments of mindfulness are even in itself planting important and powerful seeds. And so it's a process that will keep on unfolding over the course of these next weeks and months and years. And to see it as a process, a process of purification, a process of continual understanding and deepening, um, then you're, uh, you're a bit more likely to let yourself be in process rather than feel you should have achieved the, the final goal. As long as you're facing in the right direction, this is my um, message to myself and to everyone, as long as we're facing in the right direction, it's not a race. You can only be right where you are, but as long as you're heading in the right way, then you just take the next step and you keep on learning. Yeah. Start where you are, as Pema Chodron says. And this process of purification, uh, part of it is the fact that you'll see more clearly the ways that you usually get confused or lost, that you have really um, little of awareness of if you hadn't taken a look at your mind. There's a, a feeling of um, sometimes, gosh, I'm seeing the way I, I get lost in my confusion and my sadness or my loneliness or my fear or my judgment or whatever. Uh, I don't want to see that. Maybe I was better off not seeing all of that. But it's not so. You're better off seeing. Actually, I'm just remembering a, a, one of my favorite lines of Joseph's. He says, the not seeing of dukkha, suffering, dukkha is suffering. The not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. Because if you're not seeing it, you're bound to keep on getting lost in it. So this process of waking up by very nature is humbling because you see all the ways that you get confused. And so when you do go home and you see all those patterns, you know, the first time I, I did a long retreat, uh, a long, a three-month retreat, and I thought that I had gotten fairly still and quiet and centered. Then I opened up my mouth, like we'll do a little bit tomorrow, and it was all there, judgment and paranoia and being like a little kid, and I went running to, to my teacher, to Joseph, saying, it didn't work, <laughs> basically. It's true. Yeah. I thought of... Maybe I should ask for my money back, but I didn't have the gumption for that. But he reminded me, it's not about getting rid of anything. It's about making friends with everything. 
But having seen it, especially if you've been doing this for a while, you see it again and again, and there's this sense of, my God, I can't believe I'm stuck again. You know, I, I'm an experienced practitioner. I've heard 200 hindrances, hindrance talks, heard another one today, you know, this, this retreat. Why am I here again? No. And then you, maybe you remember the teaching on the second dart, or the second arrow. We haven't talked about it here the, the, in this teaching. The Buddha says the first arrow is the pain, either physical pain or the pain of some emotion, sadness, or fear, or whatever. But the second arrow is shooting on top of the first when you say, oh God, how pathetic I am for having this. Okay, that's the second arrow. And then you say, okay, I know the teaching about the second arrow. I got it. I see it clearly. I'm still here. I'm still stuck. Okay, I'll just be mindful. I'll bring some mindfulness and compassion. It's still here. And then you have, I think it's been referred to here, a multiple hindrance attack, where <laughs> one after another, there's desire, and then there's aversion to the desire, and then there's doubt, and then there's restlessness, and then you just kind of fall asleep, you know. <laughs> it's humbling. It's really humbling. But it's okay, as long as you're facing in the right direction, this practice requires patience, a lot of patience. It's, it's been said that the spiritual journey requires a cup of wisdom, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. It's a good thing to keep in mind because you're, you're learning new ways, new habits, and the old habits have been practiced for your whole life. And so it's going to take some time. The Dalai Lama says uh, the, probably the biggest difference between Western and, and Asian students, practitioners, is impatience. Sometimes it's called McDharma. Come on, <laughs> fast, fast road to enlightenment. And he, he doesn't call it McDharma, but that's some, it's been coined that. And he says, if you're going to look over your practice, over, over a, a, some sense of if you've been uh, growing, look over five or ten year periods rather than last week to this or last month or, la or last year. And see, has there been some growth? Have you been a bit kinder? more patient, more trusting. And so to really understand that you are learning new ways, new habits, but it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this, in one moment you can be back to square one. There's a saying in India, in, in the Hindu tradition, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. Just one thought away. Hey, I'm a 93-year-old saint. Yeah. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so, cut yourself a lot of slack. 
and be very patient with your process. Mentioned it here before, I'll just mention a few things uh, on this front end of the, uh, of the talk. And that is having a sense of humor about the whole thing. If you can laugh at your mind, laugh at the ways you get caught, and really laugh and go from, oh, look at, look at this disgusting mind to, wow, look at the mind do its thing. It makes all the difference in the world because you're not taking personally all of these habits. Wow, you're exploring the mind and body. This is your laboratory, like I said at the beginning. And it also requires real forgiveness. Forgiveness for all the ways that you've practiced habits that don't serve you. Who's to blame for that? Who's to blame? It's all causes and conditions and habits practiced. So forgiving the habits of mind and forgiving yourself for getting stuck and caught once again with self-compassion. The more you can have self-compassion and understand your, your own foibles and confusions, the more it spills out to others. As one teacher uh, who inspires me says, as long as you're learning, there are no mistakes. Here's from uh, Ramdas from uh, Be Here Now. I think I mentioned, mentioned that and him, that book that changed my life almost 50 years ago. This is what he says. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple, that is to the, the essence of who you are. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple. But of course, the light gets brighter too. So anytime you see, instead of feeling discouraged that there you are stuck again, appreciate that you're seeing. In the same way that you appreciate when you see that your mind has drifted off, appreciate that you've just come back. But when you see how you've gotten stuck again, appreciate that there's an awareness that's waking up. Pema Chodron, another uh, teaching of hers that I love, she says, take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. Take delight in the awareness that sees the suffering. It's fantastic that you're starting to see it. As humbling as it is, you're getting more and more conscious, and so there's a possibility of change. Any moment we can hold all of those habits with kindness, with wisdom, without taking them personally, and as you do, 
you're not stuck in the same way. And you see, as I said, I think the first night, this is about learning to be here for the ride. And in life, sometimes it's beautiful and amazingly profound or loving or deeply content. And sometimes it's hard because there's loss, there's um, things that happen, there's loved ones that, um, uh, that we care about that are going through hard stuff, there's us going through hard stuff. But it's about being here for the ride and every moment counts. At any moment, you can hold your pain and sorrow with a wide, loving awareness. And the key is to have some space around it. And space, as we've talked about, I just want to share with you a, a little teaching that I've gotten back in touch with uh, in, in recent times. Space is the key, like Howie, uh, his, his uh, meditation today, the big, big mind meditation, where everything is held in space, in the space of awareness, where sounds come and go and sensations come and go and thoughts and feelings all come and go and there's an awareness that can hold it all. And as soon as you bring space to something, you are not caught up in the small-minded or contracted reaction. In the teachings, all the wholesome qualities of mind and heart are expansive. Generosity, love, compassion, equanimity, joy, they're all open and expansive. And all the states, uh, mind states that are suffering are contracted. Confusion, fear, wanting, aversion, all of those are all contracted states. And so really, a way to think of the practice is when you're contracted, all you need to do is the slightest movement towards opening. I wanted to share with you what, I, what I've been hanging out again with after many years is um, I want to share a passage from a book that I loved long time ago, before meditation, before I got into meditation. In the 60s, there was a really great book, you can download it, uh, called The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. It's a very thin book, by the way. <laughs> It's great, by Thaddeus Golas, G-O-L-A-S. And I'll just, I just want to read you this passage. It's really the essence of his treatise, which I, is really the essence of my practice. Uh, and for years, I, I had forgotten about it, but it really, this is where I first tuned into this. Just listen to this. The basic function of each being is expanding and contracting. Expanded beings are permeative. Contracted beings are dense and impermeative. We experience expansion as awareness, comprehension, understanding, or whatever we wish to call it. 
When we're completely expanded, we have a feeling of total awareness, of being one with all life. When a being is totally contracted, they are a mass particle completely imploded. To the degree that one is contracted, a being is unable to be in the same space with others. So contraction is felt as fear, pain, unconsciousness, ignorance, hatred, evil, and a whole host of strange feelings. At an extreme, they have the feeling of being completely insane, of resisting everyone and everything, of being unable to choose the content of their consciousness. But of course, these are just the feelings appropriate to mass, dense vibration levels, and one can get out of them at any time by expanding, by letting go of all resistance to what one thinks, sees, or feels. I love that. That's really the practice. And one way that I think of the practice is when I realize that I'm tight, whatever I can do to get a little bit of space, I don't have to open up my heart as wide as the world. The slightest, this is the secret, the slightest movement towards expansion is enough. Then you just pay attention to that. So the slightest movement of holding with kindness your pain, or of going out into nature, or of um, exercising and, and letting go of the contraction, the slightest movement, whatever it is, calling a friend, whatever it is, that starts the different, the shift. And so, just to see, in, in any moment, you can start that shift. Sometimes the body gets locked and it's hard, so you can't be impatient with it, but even if it's just not beating yourself up and seeing, it's okay, dear, you're just having a hard time. That's a good start. So, now, having looked at maybe a few tips to, to keep in mind and to be patient with yourself, want to talk about bringing this back out into your world. And I want to, um, again, read a, another passage from Be Here Now, which I've been getting back into in recent times. An oldie but a timeless goodie. Where he says, there is in addition to the up and down cycles, an in and out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled in to inner work, and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and to get on with your spiritual practice. Like coming to a retreat like this. Then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these parts of the cycle are a part of one's practice. For what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation 
And what happens to you in meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. So not to think one is better than the other. They're both part of our growing and developing our inner world so we express it outwardly. What is happening to you is nothing less than death and rebirth. What is dying is the entire way in which you understood who you are and how it all is. What is being reborn is the child of the spirit for, for whom all things are new. This process of attending an ego that is dying at the same time as you're going through a birth process is awesome. Be gentle and honor that which is dying as well as that which is being born. So you don't have to get rid of anything. You're going through a transformation as you wake up more and more. And so an essential part of that transformation is coming back out into the world. It's hard enough to control this mind. Don't bet on controlling the ones around you. So I'll just say a little bit about relationship. Which is a beautiful part of our life. In fact, the Buddha in the Eightfold Path uh, realized it's not about being in a cave all the time. And so if you know, the, if you've seen that wheel, the, 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 uh, the prayer wheel as you uh, leave the gate, um, the Eightfold Path, there is wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. Okay. The Buddha understood this is part of the practice. And it's kind of interesting that even the people closest to us, the ones that we care about most, are often they can be the most challenging. Has anybody noticed that? <laughs> it's because we care so much. And so that's part of the deal of being a human. And relationships can show us how to love, can show us where we need to grow, can show us our attachments, can show us how to, um, how to have patience, you know. You want to learn patience? Have some children. <laughs> and it's so beautiful, and it can be challenging. Or being in a really strong relationship. And the, the difference between um, 
metta, loving kindness, you've been doing some metta, I don't know if it was mentioned, the near enemy of metta is attachment. Did you talk about that at all? So metta, each of the, those Brahma Viharas has a near enemy. It looks like the noble quality, but it's very different. And metta, or loving kindness, is a beautiful quality, but when it turns into attachment, then we have what's commonly called the pain of love, of the country and western songs and romance novels and movies, you know, the pain of love. But that's not real um, loving kindness as we're talking about here. And in just one moment, that love can turn to contraction. Here's a little exercise that I like to do since we won't have that much opportunity uh, again, I just want to share this one with you. Go, f uh, close your eyes for a moment and go inside and think of somebody who's really important to you. And usually in metta we say, don't pick a complicated relationship. Now you can if you want, okay? Just somebody who is really important to you, who you really do care about. Okay? And bring them to mind, bring them into your heart, and first, just tune into the things that you really do appreciate about them. Maybe you see them smiling back at you. Oh, thank you for picking me. And just wish them well. Oh, I really do want to see you happy. May you be happy and see all the good inside of you and have real peace inside. Notice how that feels to just wish them well. Now for a moment, think of times when you have an agenda for them, when you don't want them to disappoint you or nag you or somehow wondering if they'll come through for you. Please don't disappoint me. how that feels. I won't leave you here, don't worry. Take a nice breath. And once again, just wish them well. Just tune into their goodness and send them some loving energy. I really do wish the best for you. May you be happy. So again, notice how that feels inside. Okay, you can open your eyes. You notice any difference between the two? Probably in one moment when you move from this to this, you're in the pain of love classical pain. But, and of course we want people to be responsible and to keep their agreements and to, uh, uh, to uh, just be uh, dependable. But the more we want them to feel differently than they feel, um, the more frustrating it might be. So, rather than 
getting frustrated that they're not how you want them to be, um, which is human, of course. You know, I'm not saying uh, that I don't get there. I certainly do. But in my better moments, and we all have our better moments, to really understand another person's reality instead of assuming that your reality is the right one, can shift things. A number of years ago, I was with a, I was in Trinidad. Jane and I got invited to, to visit there to share some, uh, some stuff with uh, educators. And uh, the person who invited us had a 13-year-old um, daughter, very wise beyond her years, who gave me a great teaching. She said, um, I'm working on uh, an invention that might lead to world peace. I said, oh yeah? Please tell me about it. And she said, it's called a perspective helmet. You put it on, and as soon as you put it on, you can understand the perspective of the person that you're speaking to. I said, I'll invest in that if you can figure out how to do it. She said, I'm still kind of, I haven't figured it out totally, but that's the idea. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Everybody is walking around with their own reality that makes complete sense to them, as you are. And you might be thinking, if only everybody saw it the way I did, this would be just a fine world. Except everybody else is going around with that reality too. So to just try to understand the perspective doesn't mean you agree with them. And sometimes it might mean being very fiercely, compassionately, fiercely doing what you can to stop harm in this world. Because there's a lot of harm and cruelty in this world. I'll get to that in a, in a moment. But for now, with the people who we really want to have good relationships with, and to have healthy boundaries with too, to just try to understand if this person is in pain, or in fear, or in uh, lost in their uh, compulsions or whatever. The Dalai Lama has a great teaching. He says, um, if someone is upsetting you, understand that from mostly they're not trying to hurt you. Rather, it's that their internal reality is intersecting with your internal reality in a way that doesn't meet up with your hopes and expectations. How simple. And there are times where you need to have your space because you don't want to be subjecting yourself to uh, unnecessary um, suffering. And he also says if you've done everything you can to have good energy and send and uh, and lead with with love, and there's still negativity. That's the time to find the nearest exit. He says this, or to do something about the situation as skillfully as possible. 
Okay, so this is the challenge and the, um, the tremendous opportunity to wake up in our relationships because it's quite extraordinary besides the difficulties we care about each other we can love each other and we can be loved and sometimes one of the hardest things is not so much loving but letting in the love so here's a little practice that I've found very helpful it's a kind of Tibetan practice when anyone is being kind to you or opening a door or saying hi how are you don't miss that goodwill coming towards you feel that connection and see them as an agent of life letting you know that you are loved they are just an expression of life saying here's some goodwill towards you it's just life letting you receive that don't miss it and on the opposite the corollary to that is keep looking for the good because the more you look for the good the more you actually draw it out of others it's been a main practice of mine for for many years If you sense that somebody is looking at you and judging you, how do you feel? Judged, small, right? But if somebody comes in a room and they might know all of your foibles, but you know that they're just tuning into how your beauty and your goodness, how do you feel? You feel beautiful we have a real power to draw that out of each other and the more you look for it not only will you see it but you'll actually activate it in others as well not always but often it's certainly worth worth a shot so now how about the bigger picture there is a world out there that is crazy on the one hand and beautiful on the other but these are very intense times I don't think I have to tell anyone the news on that it's a very interesting moment in humanity's journey as one good friend uh, puts it we're in a race between fear and consciousness race between fear and consciousness he's recently revised that saying we're in a race between extinction and consciousness so how to work with that and put our practice in uh, in motion and I want to first read something to you from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi 
I, these days I read it on most every retreat. Uh, it's an essay that you can, you can Google called A Challenge to Buddhists. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, if you've ever seen all the, the thick reference uh, books of the Pali Canon, the, how the teachings have, in, have been preserved, uh, the middle-length discourses and the, uh, the numerical discourses and the connected discourses, thousands of pages. Bhikkhu Bodhi is the translator for all of those books. So this guy is really into the Buddhist teaching. And this is what he says as far as this time in our practice and our journey. A challenge to Buddhists. I'll just read a little excerpt. If Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential, attracting the affluent and the educated. It will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite. But it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that these teachings should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. A challenge to Buddhists. So, what to do with this situation? It's so easy to get caught up in outrage, despair, helplessness. There's a lot of reasons, understandable reasons, to get caught up in those feelings. But that's just one side of the story. It's just focusing on one side. Because along with all the craziness, and confusion and ignorance, there's so much goodness and caring that's getting activated. And that's how it usually works. That suffering wakes us up and the pendulum is always swinging and there's never been as much consciousness 
caring about the planet, caring for the preservation and healing of the planet, caring for injustice to those uh, who are oppressed, who are carrying the biggest load. There's never been as much caring as now. So, what are we going to focus on? Underneath that outrage and the despair and the helplessness, all of those feelings are there because underneath all of them, we care. That's why it hurts. So to go underneath those topmost expressions of contraction to that soft place that really cares and really hurts and wants to express and wants to, hopes to make a difference, makes all the difference in the world. This is uh, from Howard Zinn, uh, who wrote The People's History of the United States. Howard Zinn, The Unvarnished History. Who, he also happened to be John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law, but he was a great historian in his own right. And this is what he says, this very realistic historian. An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness, what we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So here we are, particularly in the health of our planet, the climate situation, which is something that touches me uh, very much. And we all have to see what touches us. I'm not saying this is the one you should choose. As Andrew Harvey says, follow your heartbreak. Just see where your heart is breaking and, and, and do something there. But here we are, and one can think of it, we're in the dark night of the species. And if you are familiar with St. John of the Cross, who wrote uh, The Dark Night of the Soul, the confusion that comes just before awakening. And we're in some very um, scary times and just like on retreat, where you go through the hard times, suffering is usually what wakes us up. We are also with a potential for awakening in a new way that uh, hasn't been possible before. So what narrative are you holding for the planet? 
what's your highest vision? Because it helps to have a vision of the possibility. Otherwise, it's too hard to keep on going on. But we are going to all wake up sooner or later. This is how, and we are waking up very quickly uh, in, in terms of larger time. We're going to wake up sooner or later, everybody, even climate deniers, for instance. We will wake up. Everyone's going to wake up. So why not do what we can to make it sooner rather than later? Because the sooner, the less suffering. And whatever it is that moves you, whether it's climate or injustice or refugees or gun, gun violence or whatever it is, or just helping people in your life, compassion is a verb, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. And it feels good to move from that helplessness into expressing your caring. Action absorbs anxiety is a, a favorite teaching from Angelus Arian. Action absorbs anxiety. Lily Tomlin, uh, brilliant comedian, uh, she has this line. She says, I always thought someone should do something about that. And then I realized I was someone. <laughs> but to do it without hatred in our hearts because if we get lost in our own bitterness and hatred and mean-spiritedness we're just adding to that same painful dissension this is uh, uh, Martin Luther King The ultimate weakness of violence is that it's a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. It's very much like the Buddha's teaching. He says, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. Another uh, king quote comes to mind. He says, you have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. You have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. So how, how to, to do that? How to bring about your caring without the hatred? You just see, just like before with that perspective helmet, that people get confused and the real villain is ignorance. The real villain is not seeing clearly. And one of my favorite teachings is, is, is Jesus uh, on the cross where he says, forgive them, they know not what they do. 
you might say, oh, they know what they're doing, but they don't really see where true happiness lies. So that's why I say we're all agents of consciousness and our own practice ripples out to bring a bit more consciousness into the world because consciousness is contagious and love is contagious just like fear and hatred. So this is where we want to express our caring by having our practice ripple out in the world. This is no time to play small. There's too much on the line. This is a time to get in touch with your understanding your love, your compassion, your joy, your peace, all of that affects everybody around you. So I hope you can see your practice in, in that context where your own well-being becomes a gift to everybody around you. As Shanti Deva says, the miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. So I'll, I'll end with uh, this uh, passage uh, that I love from... Um, great Tibetan master, Nyosho Kempo, who says, we're not practicing for ourselves alone. Since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others, whatever else we might do is secondary to that. If we cultivate this good heart this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed in us, and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas in training, strive to embody. Let's just sit for a few moments.
Thank you very much for your attention. 30 minutes for walking and then some chanting when we come back.